Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke. Thanks for joining me. Today, my guest is Sora Park. Sora is the Associate Dean of Research and Professor of Communication in the Faculty of Arts and Design at the University of Canberra. Her research focuses on digital media, media markets and media policy, with a special focus on digital and social exclusion and the impact of technology on the distribution of opportunities and privileges in society. Sora was the former director of the News and Media Research Centre at the University of Canberra and chair of the Media Industry Studies Interest Group of the International Communication Association and she is currently the president of the Australian and New Zealand Communication Association. She has extensive experience in policy research and consultancy in regards to digital media in South Korea. In the private sector, she's held consultancies with major internet and media companies such as KBS, NHN Corporation and MBC. Previously, she taught at Han Yang University where she was the director of the Interdisciplinary Program of Women's Studies from 2005 to 2006. She was the chair of the School of Communication Arts at Kwangwoon University in Seoul in Korea. And she has previously worked as a research fellow at the Korean Press Foundation and is and has been a visiting scholar at the University of California, San Diego and the Oxford Internet Institute, as well as the American University. And she joins me here in the studio. Sora, thanks very much for joining me on GovComs. Thank you. Very nice to meet you. So you're back, Sora. You're, you're in Australia, but let's go back to South Korea. Where did that interest in media and the role of media first strike you as something that you wanted to dedicate your career to? Yes. So when I was very young, I worked as a writer for a major broadcast in Korea called KBS. And I wrote um, for lots of entertainment programs. So it was a lot of fun. But at that time, which was in the 90s, there was a lot of changes going on in the media market. And I could see that the industry was changing so rapidly and there were mentions of digitalizing and, you know, internet had just arrived. And so I really wanted to have more opportunities and see where the industry is going. So I decided I should study more. Um, So I chose to study in the US uh, and do a communication and media studies degree. And I ended up studying media economics and media industry studies, which gave me a really good solid um, background of how to understand all the changes that were happening at that time. Um, And then, yeah, that's how I became an academic. Okay. Uh, What was that experience like, going to the United States to study? Oh, very, very um, shocking and different (laughs) from Korea in many, many ways, but especially regarding the media markets. Korea is a very protected, heavily regulated concentrated um, media environment uh, and the government has very tight control at that time government has very tight control of the media companies whereas in America 
it was much more subtle and it was basically a free market. And um, so that was a very different environment to what I'd been used to. So it was very interesting to see the two different countries and different approaches. Yeah. And what were the big insights that you took away from that period of study? Um, I realised that although the US um, media companies dominate globally, like Hollywood and, you know, all these digital platforms now, and and they have definitely strength in, in operating in a you know, very market environment, market-oriented environment, rather than like a government-restricted, regulated environment. And that's where their strength is. But I realised that's the anomaly. In most countries, um, media markets aren't as free as in the US. So definitely there, there are strengths and weaknesses. But the weakness in, in the American style is that... Um, because it's driven by market power and, and profits, um, uh, in in most cases, in a lot of the cases, the the public's voice or, or you know things like equity and fairness and balance could be um, compromised. But it, again, it's it's an anomaly. Like most countries operate the opposite. Yeah, indeed, and uh, and uh, and certainly over there, I think the First Amendment right that Americans have also. Uh, has a quite a big impact on the way that they cover yep. um, different topics yep. in the United States. Do you think that how does that change it for the citizen in the American market that they there is such freedom and it is driven by such uh, you know the, the protection of free speech? Mm-hmm. Um, how does that change the way that the, the the media market works in the United States? So I think there is a lot of trial and error. And a lot of you know loss and waste in getting to that optimal point, um, but I think that's that's also their strength that they wait until things have been discussed and things have been you know um, coordinated within the market. Um, so I think that's the strength that they have. They they fight for something like within the market and and the the optimal you know player survives. Not that it's always good for the whole public or the whole country, but just within the market, I think um, the players who survive are those who are innovative and, and, you know, respond to their customers. So there's definitely strength there, yeah. So how then did you make your way to Australia to become (laughs) an academic here in Australia? Yes, so I've moved around a lot since I was very young because my father was a journalist, so... Um, I like experiencing different cultures, different countries. And so after my studies in the US, I went back to Korea and became an academic there. But because I've lived in so many different cultures, adjusting back in Korea was not very easy because Korea is Korea has a very, you know, traditional... Um, how can I say? It's a very homogenous um, and very traditionally based culture. Um, so, yeah, so people like me who have experienced many different cultures sometimes find it hard to adjust. But I really enjoyed the, um, staying there for about 10 years. And then it got to a point where I thought maybe I should be experiencing some new cultures now. And um, I didn't, I wasn't, I, I, I wasn't going to, you know, 
go somewhere that's completely foreign, but somewhere where I, I thought I could adjust, where, where I can, you know, speak the language and know the culture. And I thought at that time Australia would be very similar to the US or UK that I grew up in. So I thought it, were, it would be like a very risk-free place to <laughs> explore. But it turned out to be very different. Um, but yeah, but I, I like it here and I decided to stay. So I've, I've been here about 10 years now. Mm. Yeah. So what are, you, what are the differences? Uh, when, so when you arrived in Australia, <laughs> what did you think? Uh, I, first of all, it's, um, it's not the typical Western culture where like Koreans like me or Asians like me think Western culture is very individualistic. You know, everyone looks after themselves. They're... Um, and, but in Australia, I realised that's not the case. Everyone is not individualistic, not in the sense of like in the US or, or Europe. It's much more, you know, family-oriented, more group-oriented. You care about your colleagues. Um, you mind others. So I, I think that's definitely a huge difference between here and America or, you know, UK. And in that, have you, in your time here, that you've been here 10 years, has that got stronger or has that weakened in, oh, your, in Australia? Yeah, in your observation of time and obviously through this COVID period? What would your yeah. observations be? That's very interesting. I think it's gone stronger because I think, especially um, even before COVID, Australia is like geographically much closer to Asia than anywhere else. And I think the influence, and there's a lot of Asians living here, a lot of exchange. So I think there is that influence that Australia is more open to embracing Asian cultures because of the proximity and Asian cultures are usually more family oriented, more group oriented, thinking about the society rather than the individual. Mm. So I think, yeah, in that direction, it's definitely growing. Mm. It's a great part of Australia though, isn't it? That, you know, the multicultural society where it is a genuine multicultural society. You know, we had the, you know, post-World War um, migration from Europe and, you know, obviously the integration with the Asia-Pacific, um, it throws up quite a, like, an interesting place to live and to, to experience. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it is a very interesting place to live, I think, yeah. Mm. So in terms of the, the media market and your observations of it, what are you seeing at the moment? There are so many issues in media at the moment and they, and they do go to the issue of government uh seeking to communicate effectively inside that market and how can they participate effectively so they can explain mm -hmm. policy, so they can explain decisions, so they can explain programs. Um, and I think through COVID in particular, you have seen that there is a real appetite mm -hmm. from the public to get the information from the political leaders, because they want to know, particularly when there is a crisis as there is at, at the moment. But if I might sort of take you up, um, you know, to a, a higher level looking down on the media market, what would your commentary be at the moment about the current state of the media market here in Australia, but and then more broadly around the world? Yep. So in Australia and in other countries, media markets are all experiencing you know, so rapid changes and um, they're losing advertising to digital platforms, they're losing audiences to digital platforms. So it's a very challenging time and I think COVID has, you know, um, accelerated that ch challenge. Um, 
the role of government, I think, is to, because the media markets have changed so much. So in the past, Australia was very, very concentrated, like only two, three players, you know, dominating the whole, you know, audiences and what they read and view. But now it has changed so rapidly. Um, it would be very hard for governments to actually shift the paradigm so they can embrace the changes but also support the media markets. I think that would be a huge challenge. But um, one promising aspect of all these changes is that audiences or users or citizens can directly you know, access information that's coming from the government. And there is a definite trend because um, I'm part of this uh, global study called the Digital News Report. And we ask people, we didn't ask it this year, but we, um, on certain years, we ask, do you actually follow, you know, government messaging or politicians or journalists by following them on social media? And we can see an upward trend. And we also did a recent And was study. that before COVID? Yes. Were, were you starting to see COVID, that yes, people were yes. starting to be a little starting bit more engaged? Much more engaged okay. directly with the sources. And we were able to confirm that during COVID, we did a, another study during COVID on um, media consumption patterns of Australians, and we found that people would directly go to the source more than through news media or social media. So they would go to government websites, um, you know, health organisations, um, health experts um, to find information about COVID. So whether or not this was because it's a critical health information is um, really unknown yet. We, we have to investigate other areas. But at least within the COVID context, we do know people reach out to government directly for information and they find that very um, reassuring because the trust level is also much higher. So those who access um, government websites, health organisations, they have a much higher trust in the information they find on those sites compared to information filtered by journalists or social media, which is dramatically different from what we encountered like 10, 20 years ago, where people mostly relied on news media to, you know, vouch for information. But now they, they're trusting them less and they're going directly to the source. Mm. So in terms of that, the... The audience, the citizen coming to those government sites, the experience is often not quite what it needs to be, particularly when you compare it to a, a media site or a social site. It doesn't work as quickly. It's probably not as visual. There's not as much uh, video. It's not as updated as, as often as it needs to be. What advice do you have to the publishers who are now living inside government organisations and growing their capability? What's the best way that they can meet the needs of these information-hungry citizens as they come direct to them for information? Yeah, I, I think this, everyone, including individuals, uh, have to become a journalist. Like, they have to be able to tell their stories and be able to tell it in a way that the audience can digest. So if the audience wants visual, they, they have to be able to, you know, make a video clip. If the audience wants audio, they have to tell the story. You know, so I think, and especially like big organisations like government and big companies, they they should um, invest in telling their stories and, and at the level of their customers and who comes to their sites. So, yeah, it's, I, I guess it's a whole new world in, in governments investing in, in direct communication to the public in, in such a way, but that's definitely the trend that we're seeing. 
And the thing is that it's it, it's not only the trend, but it's coming fast, oh. and the demands are coming fast. You know, the demands from. Uh, ministers to be active, to be explaining what it is they're doing, to be able to be producing the video, the audio, the animation, the graphics. It really does sort of point to a different type of capability that needs to service this emerging need. So as as an educator in this space, how can people improve? How can people acquire these really important content creation and distribution skills such that they are you know, helping to deliver for government, which is why, you know, people work in, in, in the public sector. Yep. The short answer to that is come study with us. <laughs> <laughs> uh, There's the but... softball straight over the fence. <laughs> but um, I think the whole educational system... <laughs> well, it's true. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It needs to shift uh, media literacy, or we could call it something else, but media literacy is probably the most common word we use, should be taught in schools, which they are, but it should be broadened and it should be part of everyone's, you know, growing up. They learn how to tell stories through many different platforms. That's just the way the world is structured now. So basic media literacy in schools, but also embedded in all the tertiary education as well. So even if you're studying medical science, um, you should have the basic communication skills. So that's the probably the direction that um, we're heading towards. Um, but, but changing education systems uh, is quite very hard. But I think that's the direction we're all going um, to. to yeah, so it becomes yeah. much more of a core yes, around yeah, your yeah. education as opposed to a specialisation, yeah, yeah. although there will remain yes, yeah. specialisation. But you, I'm interested... Education systems are going to have to change. They are changing. Uh, And we had a great conversation here uh, last week or the week before with uh, Professor uh, Mick Kaju-Hall from the ANU about how that big institution is trying to evolve and adapt to meet the needs of uh, a more digital world. Um, Surely education systems are going to have to evolve more rapidly than they have in the past and they're going to have to move to meet the needs or otherwise people will go around them to get what it is that they actually need. Yep, yeah. So at the university level, the the change is yeah, yeah, coming and, and quite rapidly so. So we are offering many different ways to not just educate the young people who come to university but, uh, you know, the older generations, the, you know, people who are in the workforce, we do try to provide educational programs that t- that are tailored to their needs. So it wouldn't be enrolling in three-year degrees, but yeah. it would be much shorter, intensive type of um, educational programs. And I think that kind of, um, you know, courses would be growing in, in the next, you know, decade or so, yeah. So in terms of this evolving sort of changing landscape, you mentioned a few things there, and I think... Um, a couple of things I do want to talk to you about is is the, you know, the omnipotence of the of the platforms. You know, your, your Googles and Facebooks and you know Instagrams. They are so powerful. They are so big, uh, and they have destroyed the traditional media model by and large. You know, there are a few sort of standouts like, you know, the New York Times is a is a good example. Uh, 
Washington Post, although it helps if you've got a multi-billionaire sort of (laughs) (laughs) cash writing the checks for you. Um, So what about the platforms? What role do they have to play, particularly as it relates to misinformation and disinformation? Because it's a big problem and it's got to, something's got to be done. Yes, yeah, it is a huge problem now and something has to be done now. And I think many countries are experimenting with various um, arrangements and I think Australia is one of the leaders in that, that we have the news media bargaining code um, that is being negotiated at the moment. We have the um, voluntary code that will try to, you know, reduce misinformation or disinformation that are on the platforms. So the overall direction is, I think, for the government to be more involved in how we regulate the platforms and how we ensure that, you know, all the voices are heard. But it, it is a big challenge because most of the digital platforms, the big players are not Australian companies. And it's very hard for one country to regulate a multinational corporation. Um, So I guess it's like an internationally, we need an internationally concerted effort in in doing that. And I think Europe's doing a bit of that um, ahead of uh, the countries and Australia's doing more. But the, uh, going back to the role of digital platforms, the, well, it has given opportunities to many, many small players, like people who would never have been able to reach their audiences are now reaching audiences through these digital platforms. Um, so it's, it's a double-edged sword. So it's given a lot of opportunities, but then in doing so, they, they've become like much, much more bigger and, and more powerful. Um, so, yeah, we need to find the balance between where we support the, you know, smaller voices and where the big platforms can provide opportunities to, to um, you know, uh, um, media news companies or, you know, everyone who, who wants to reach um, audiences. So just as an aside, what and, and given that you have been, you've spent some time in the United States, what's your view on the antitrust hearings of the major platforms where, uh, you know, I think it's even today that there there may, you know, the Department of Justice might have, I think, um, there's an action against Google um, and then obviously there's the wider hearing around antitrust. Do you think that they will be broken up, that, you know, um, Google could use, lose YouTube, Facebook could become Instagram, WhatsApp, Facebook? Do you you think that that's a threat? (laughs) Yeah, so that's, yeah, I wish I would, I know the answer. But if you look back in history, it is in the US system, it is very hard to, you know, break up large companies through that antitrust um, system. Look at Hollywood studios, they were never able to break that up. Um, Look at all the, you know, Bell Atlantic, you know, the AT&T, they did they did get them in the Yeah, end. break it yeah. up. But they couldn't break up the whole monopoly in, no. in those markets. So perhaps they might be able to break up the platforms into smaller companies, but would they be able to reduce the concentration in the market? I think that's another question. So, yeah, so I am... At the moment, I'm quite sceptical, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yep. So more broadly then about media and what's your view on the, you know, the traditional players? Where do they find their home now in this distributed model where everybody is in the publishing business now? Yeah. Where do the, the traditional players find their place mm-hmm. um, and what, 
how, how do they survive? How do they get through where they are at the moment and how do they get to a point where, where they can um, flourish yeah. into the future? Yeah. So I think as a media scholar, um, it is still very important to have um, public interest journalism, that people are informed with, you know, verified facts, analysis, and, you know, all the knowledge that the media companies have accumulated over time that is different from just any information being circulated. So I do see there's, like, quality news that is so important in, in the society for citizens to make informed decisions that there needs to be some way to, you know, guarantee that everyone has access to quality information. And at the moment... If we leave it to the market, that's not going to happen because look at all the closures in regional areas, small news media closing down because advertisers are going to digital platforms and advertisers don't differentiate between news and non-news content. So it's going to get worse and worse. So so unless the government steps in or some kind of, uh, you know, there's, there must be a broader measure to ensure that quality news can be accessed by anyone and everyone. So I think do that's you think quite that, urgent. Do you think the ACCC measures are going to be enough here in Australia to sustain regional media, for example, or are they not going to get the money? Is the money going to stay with the big players in, in the capital cities? I think the direction of the ACCC's uh, recommendation... Uh, recommendations is is very promising, and I I agree with all the directions. Um, but there might need to be more, a uh, slightly more in in terms of support of regional. But there's also media, been, yeah. but there has been the regional uh, media fund as well that the government yes, has set yeah, up yeah, as well, yeah, isn't yeah, there? So there is money, yeah, a little bit yeah, more yeah. money for them. Yes. So I think that will. Um, maintain a f uh, uh, some of the regional media, but how long and how sustainable they are, I think we might need a longer-term investment in that. But if we, if, if we circle back, though, to some of your research that said that there is an increasing appetite for, uh, you know, verified facts, for yeah. information, for <laughs> surely that that maybe could it evolve to a, a business model that sustains it, that, you know, driven by the community, driven by a demand for, uh, you know, knowledge and the, tr mm -hmm. the truth in inverted commas, that there may in fact be a business model that could be developed off that? Yeah, I think so. Um, so in our global study, the Digital News Report, we do see a very slow but upward growth in the number of people who subscribe to online so, news. Yeah. yeah. So they pay a monthly fee or, you know, and it's, it's very, very slow. <laughs> well, it, well, I suppose I'm, I'm a sort of super user because I, I subscribe. I spend hundreds of dollars every month. I, su <laughs> I subscribe to everything, but I think I'm not a very good uh, yeah, example. No, you, you know? You'd be an outlier. <laughs> so most people who do subscribe, subscribe to one. Oh, really? Yeah, that's one? the... Yeah, and uh, two or more... <laughs> Don't tell my wife. <laughs> <laughs> she, she never listens anyway. So, <laughs> <laughs> so but it, there is a growth and there is a trend, so it will yeah. get there, but how soon yeah. and how much is of question. And in the meantime... If all the news businesses go out of business, there'll be nobody to subscribe to. So I think in the interim, we do need some, you know, support to so that until... Because media consumption is 
a result of a habit. You know, you have to acquire a habit for a long period of time. It's not you're not going to change your habit in a day. So until people are willing to pay for news and change their habits of accessing news, yeah, it will be a long journey. So in the meantime, we do need some kind of governmental support. Is it fair to say that there are still large numbers of students enrolling in journalism courses because they want to do journalism now which may seem unusual that as the sort of industry collapses ahead of them that they're still taking the risk and they still want to get that education in in journalism yes yes so we we definitely young people are still interested in studying journalism and they do study Um, But because the field is changing rapidly, they don't always seek jobs as a traditional, you know, journalists working for a news company. They can get jobs anywhere. Like like I mentioned before, governments and organisations, they have to somehow shift to, you know, communicating directly with the public and they will need people who who are equipped with those journalistic skills to tell their stories. So, and Which I think is actually yeah. quite useful even from an ethics point of view that people going into those jobs actually are, are trained and educated in the ethics of journalism. So when they are creating content in private sector companies, in government, that they have that grounding in journalism ethics such that they, you know, they'll create good content, which is yep. valuable yeah, and, and true and fair. Yep, yeah. That, yeah. So we're seeing a lot of that happening among our graduates, that they go into any sector or any organisation and, um, yeah, and their skills are valued by those organisations. Okay. I'm going to throw you into the time machine um, and take you forward 10 years, <laughs> ask you to look back. What, are you, what, what do you see? Where, where does it evolve? What, how does the media market uh, um, evolve and grow and and how do you participate in that as a citizen or as a government effectively? What are the things that you're, gonna, you're going to be seeing in 10 years down the track? Yeah, I think in the media market, media market will change definitely, but it will change in the direction of, you know, unbundling. So in the past, news companies used to do everything, um, deliver all the stories um, but we're already seeing a lot of that now. Like even with podcasts, you have very specialised, you know, podcasts. You have specialised, you know, channels. So I think that a lot of unbundling will happen and yep. there will be specialists and, um, you know, experts in particular topics. And it'll get narrower and narrower and I narrower, think, yeah. won't it? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Of course, everyone will need like a general news presented yep. to them. Um, But whether or not that will be a company doing the job or some aggregator compiling information from various sources, that's, yeah, we we don't know yet. But the overall direction is that much more specialised, more focused, more in-depth information that that is produced by, you know, it could be smaller players, it could be big players, but definitely that, yeah, specialisation would be very important, I think, yeah. Okay, well, Professor Sora Park, thank you so much for uh, coming into the studio today and uh, giving up some of your very valuable time and uh, thank you for the work that you continue to do in the research of this uh, critically important area for people who work in government communication because people do have to understand what's changing in the market and how can they deliver uh, good content and good stories so people can understand what governments are actually up to. 
you will know if you are a regular listener and if you've not and you've just stumbled upon the podcast, the GovComs Festival is launching on November the 17th. It is a 24-hour festival that we'll be launching here in Canberra, Australia on 10am at the uh, 17th of November. We will be going through the day and the night, going around the world. We will follow the sun, having conversations not too dissimilar to the one that we've just had with Sora Park, drawing on different people from around the world, their experience, their knowledge, their points of view, their debates, uh, the conversations that are really going to start to um, help synthesise and and start to sort of draw together a community that can start to examine the practice of communication inside government and really go to the point that Sora raised there before is that we're all in the communication business now, whether we like it or not. And as government communicators, we have to get better at being able to create useful, relevant, consistent content and to be able to communicate that consistently over time to specific audience so they can understand what indeed the detail is of that policy program or regulation. So Google GovComs Festival, jump on, please register. First 1,500 people are free. And for those who are not in the first 1,500, it'll cost you 10 bucks. So it's not very uh, expensive either. So, um, and we have some great news. The uh, emerging local government leaders in North America are providing a, a wonderful program. We've got some big news in the coming weeks coming out of Europe as well. Asia is looking very strong and certainly here at home in Australia, some great content that you won't want to miss. So Really looking forward to the GovComs Festival. Please make sure you register. Thanks again to Sora Park for coming in. And thanks to you, the audience, for coming back once again. I'll be back at the same time with another great guest here on the GovComs. But for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.